0: Good morning. So good. Uh, okay, who wants to give it up for being together again? That I mean, was that not like old times or what? And um, just it's so good to be with all of you because I've missed seeing some of you in between services, and now I feel like I get to see all the faces. And just also a shout out to Antioch, Indy. You want to know what love is? So this morning, I never had this happen before. Larry comes running up to me and offers me one of his breakfast burritos. Now, I got to tell you, I don't give up my breakfast burritos for anybody. That that is love in the house. So thank you, Larry. That was awesome. Let's open up our Bibles and notes. We're a Bible-loving, note-taking church, always approaching with high expectation and anticipation that God's going to tell us something that is worth remembering and probably worth writing down. So we're in our series in the letters to the church in Revelation, and if you've not heard the intro that Andrew did to these letters, it's really important that you take some time to go back and listen to that. Um, I think it'll give you great and important context for how we're approaching these letters. And then last week, Andrew did the first letter on the, church, on the letter to Ephesus, and the call back to our first love, and the distinction of saying, it's not that we stop loving Jesus, it is Jesus saying to His people, "Come back to the point where I am your first passion in life, in in everything." That's what I'm calling my people to—that first love experience. And this week we're looking at the second letter in Revelation, the letter to Smyrna. Now, Linda and I were watching a movie last week, and I don't know this often happens. Linda likes. Um, good movies with good endings and so we're watching this movie and a lot of bad stuff happening and, it's, and it's about halfway through Linda says to me if something good doesn't happen soon we're turning this off which which actually happens a lot where all of a sudden she's just like I'm out we're done and so we stayed with it and it did it happened it got redeemed and she looked at me and she goes that got redeemed just in time well the letter to is is a little bit like that This letter takes us through some hard realities of our journeys as Christians, but this letter leads us to a powerful, beautiful, encouraging place, and so I'm going to ask you and encourage you and promise you it gets redeemed at the end, (laughs) so stick with this. Now, let's stand as we read the word of God together, the uh, Revelation 2, verses 8 through 11, and to the angel of the church of Smyrma, write this. The first and the last who was dead and has come to life says this. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are of synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. Let's pray together. Lord, as we open these letters, I carry the weight. I know Andrew has as well that when you're about to preach on something where we know that your very lips said, tell them this, there is a weight to that. And so, Lord, I don't care about the presentation and I don't care if I read every word, just let your word go out to us this morning that we may hear and be encouraged and be lifted up and know what is it this morning that you're asking of us. In your precious name we pray, amen. Amen. Go ahead, let's be seated. As Andrew taught, the letters to the churches always start with Jesus telling us something deep about himself. If we go back to the introduction and the first chapter, actually when Jesus makes himself and reveals himself to John, he gives a very deep list of all, of, not all, but a lot of the characteristics that he is about himself, and he gives that list to John. Then when he goes out and he starts each letter, to a particular church, he grabs something from that list about himself to start each of the letters. Now, these are not random things that he picks out. You can tell because it's not necessarily in order. He just grabs something from that detailed list that he gave John, and he starts each letter with one particular part or a couple of particular parts about who he is and what he is. And so this is what he does. It reveals about his church. Jesus begins the letter to Smyrma with this description of himself in verse eight. He says this in verse eight. And to the angel of the church in Smyrma write, the first and the last who was dead and has come to life, say this. In addressing the church in Smyrna Jesus begins by confirming himself to be the alpha and the omega the beginning and the end the first and the last and like what we have seen revelation and the letters uses old testament language in order to confirm a current truth about our savior And we see this first and last language in the Old Testament. For instance, in Isaiah, in chapter 41, four, Isaiah writes this, who has performed and accomplished it, calling forth the generations from the beginning, I, the Lord and the first and with the last, I am he. He also does it in chapter 44 and chapter 48. So again, reminding you, this is not made up new language. This is taking from historic language of the old Testament that the people reading the letter of the time would have very much understood. Why? Why would Jesus start with this particular, out of the full list, why would Jesus start with this particular description of himself to the letter, and to himself, to Smyrna? If I'm honest, I read the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, and I think that's really cool. And then I kind of skip over it. If I'm really honest and I think, okay, that sounds really cool, but I find myself wondering but what does it mean to me? Like, what do I capture out of that statement? It's it's bold language, it's cool language, but what does it mean to me? The language that is confusing to us would have been crystal clear to the people that received this letter at that time. To John, this letter would have been crystal clear. This statement is a sovereignty of God statement. This is Jesus claiming sovereignty. This is him in two words, in just a few words, saying this. I am the all-encompassing one. I alone possess the ability to foretell events and to make events happen, and I alone control everything that happens. That's what first and last means. John the Baptist was, in, was very clear about something. It's really cool. When you're watching John, the he's writing about himself, and then he makes the distinction that there was something very different about Jesus that was very different from John and very different from anyone else. John said this about Jesus in John three thirty one and 32. He says, He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth. That's him talking about, John talking about himself and seeks the earth. He, Jesus, who comes from heaven is above all. What he has seen and heard, that is what he testifies to. Okay, that's cool. That is different than anybody else. John is saying, yes, I testify to some things, but what he testifies, he has seen, heard, and participated in. John understood that when Jesus spoke, he wasn't talking about things that he hoped would happen. He wasn't talking about things that he'd been taught or learned from the prophets. Jesus did not speak as a prophet. Jesus spoke and testified to things he saw, he experienced, and he participated in from the beginning of time. And that's cool. The sovereignty of God in times, in good times, is really cool. The sovereignty of God in encouraging times, it's a great concept. The sovereignty of time when you're struggling, the sovereignty of God when you're suffering, the sovereignty of God when you are going through something in your life that is completely out of your control, that is lifeblood. That is lifeblood. It is not something that is nice to know in times of struggle and sorrow and suffering. It is something that you must know, and not in here, but in here. And Jesus is speaking to their hearts I am the beginning, I am the end, I am sovereign. I was there at your beginning. I am there with you now. I will be with you at your end. So cool. So comforting. Jesus then goes further confirming to Smyrma, I was dead and now I'm alive. Well, this of course refers to the resurrection. But can we stop right there? We should never include of course in the same sentence with the resurrection. There's no of course in resurrection. As hard as we try, unless we are in the spirit, we cannot comprehend the fullness and the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I have ventured to say that none of us have probably seen the resurrection of somebody that was dead and has come to life, let alone somebody that was beaten mostly to death, nailed on a cross, pierced by a spear, buried in a cold tomb, and then set in a tomb. And I don't know, but I must work in the spirit to allow that reality to hit me so that I can understand the power of the historical event that destroyed death. This is not a small thing. There's no of course in this. This is the event in history that overcame death. The closest thing I come to experience than the finality of death and the power of the resurrection was when my brother-in-law, Scott, passed away from cancer. When he died, we were all in the room. We were all talking to him. We were all talking back and forth. He was sharing with us. And just a few hours later, he had passed. And so much was going on after he'd passed and he was in that room and I walked in alone. And for the first time in my life, I faced lifelessness. The overwhelming power of somebody who just a couple of hours ago was alive, moving, sharing, participating. And I looked at him and there was nothing. And the power of it overwhelmed me. And I remember saying to myself, that I gasped with the finality of the power. And I remember saying to myself, now I have a glimpse of why the resurrection had to happen. Only resurrection could overcome this power. I actually remember thinking that. Yes, Jesus on the cross died for our lying, for our cheating, for our stealing, for our selfishness, but on the cross, it was much more than that. On the cross, Jesus took on every idol we would ever be tempted to worship, every evil that would come and attempt to destroy us. The brutality of the cross because it was so brutal because that was the battleground of life and death. That was the history moment where our advocate, our leader, our savior, our Lord, took on all the powers that we would face of evil for the rest of that, for that time and for all of eternity. He took on every power that existed in the worldly realm, meaning worldly religions that could give rules and laws and bind people but could not set them free. He took on the world power of that time like the world had never known up in that time in terms of the most cruel, forceful, Powerful um, existence in Rome of that time, he took that on as well. And even more so, Jesus put himself at the disposal of every demonic force that would ever come after us in our life. Every demonic force that would whisper to you in your lifetime, you are worthless. Every demon that would say to you, you are mine. Every single disease that would say to you, you will die and you will stay dead. Jesus took them all on and on the cross, he stretched out his arms. He submitted to every single one of those, allowed his hands to be nailed to that cross, And then he stood there and submitted, giving up every one of his powers, everything, that every one of his defenses. And he said and allowed them to do their worst. And a vileness like the world has never seen before, never seen again, was poured out on him. And he took it all. And those forces killed him. Don't Forget that part. Jesus was dead. Jesus was a corpse. I picked that word carefully because of the boldness of it because there was nothing pretty about what happened to Jesus. And Jesus was a corpse and a corpse leaves leaves no doubt that it's over and there's nothing more that can be done. Jesus' lifeless body was an exclamation point in every realm that ever existed that they took him on and they won. He was dead. Evil had won. And then he breathed. And I'm telling you before a word was ever spoken out of that tomb, just when he breathed, Every realm, past, present, and future, knew that everything had changed. And from that time on, they heard this loud and clear from our Savior, now it's my turn. And we, we live in that my turn now. We live in the my turn now. So Jesus starts his message to Smyrna with two affirmations. I am sovereign over everything that you ever experience. I have defeated the power of evil and the power of death. And I have destroyed death and it cannot hold you. Why? Why did Jesus pick this particular description about himself to launch the letter to Smyrna? I think we see the answer to this in the next verse when he says, Jesus says, in verse nine, I know your tribulation and I know your poverty. I believe Jesus opened with these deep confirmations of his re- reality because Jesus knew that the lives of the people in Smyrna were hard and difficult and about to get harder. And it was only these two truths, his sovereignty and his defeat of death that would carry them through. I know your tribulation, he says. Now, tribulation, what I'm about to say about tribulation may be different than some of the teaching that you are familiar with that takes this term to mean a future period of trial that will be for a specific people and a specific church at a specific time in the future that will signify the beginning of the end times. But the Greek word here is thlipsis, and it is used many times throughout the, Old, the New Testament. And it refers to the ongoing, severe, current trials of the followers of Jesus. 2 Corinthians 1.8, it says this. For we do not want to be, we be unaware. This is Paul writing about his life. We do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of your affliction. That's that word, Philippus which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. And Jesus himself says this in John sixteen thirty three: these things I've spoken to you so that in me, you may have peace in the world. You will have tribulation flips us, but take courage. I have overcome the world. These words in verse nine, in this letter, we believe are believed by many refer to only a future time of intense suffering for a particular church at a particular time that will begin the end times. But we believe that the Bible teaches that these letters are for the church then, the church now, and the churches for all time until Jesus comes again. That when we're talking about tribulation, when we're talking about this suffering, it is referring to the same suffering that Paul went through, that Peter went through, and that so many saints, past, present, and future, have suffered. And that Jesus is referring to the trials and sacrifice and suffering that disciples of Jesus will sometimes go through. All through history until he comes again. And so it will be for some of us. It will be for all of us in one shape or another, and some even deeper than others. As a matter of history, everything that Jesus spoke of about this tribulation, imprisonment, sorrow, death, actually occurred in Smyrma within a few years of this writing. Likewise, the poverty referred to by Jesus and recorded by Jesus also very much reflects what actually happened in the church of Smyrma at the time of this writing. They were impoverished. Christianity was being persecuted. It was proclaiming Christianity came at a really heavy cross cost. The Romans had elevated their belief of Caesar even higher than ever before. And now he was considered a God. And therefore there was no choice any longer. You were forced to bow and worship to Caesar as a God or you were persecuted. And sometimes you would be killed, sometimes you would be tortured, but everyone suffered economic persecution, limiting the jobs they could have, the positions they called. That's why they were impoverished, for their faith. Jesus speaks to this in verse 10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. The tribulation of 10 days, it seems most likely a reference to an Old Testament passage of Daniel and his friends. If we remember from Daniel, Daniel and his friends were asked to bow down to King Nebuchadnezzar and they refused. And they asked and instead were given a 10-day feast or fast of vegetables and water. And that's the language this is using for the tribulation and the suffering of the saints today, and the suffering of the saints in Smyrna. This was exactly what was happening in Smyrna. Now, like King Nebuchadnezzar, Caesar had been elevated to a king. They were being asked to worship him and to bow down. They refused, and therefore, they too suffered poverty, tribulation, and persecution. This was not just at the hands of the Romans. Their suffering was also at the hand of other Jews. As other Jews were jealous of the rise of Christianity, and began to turn in Christians to the Romans and use the, Roman, use the Romans to persecute Christians just like the Jews' leaders used Rome to crucify Jesus. This is why at the end of verse nine, there's a very strong condemning statement. By those who say they are Jews and are not, but they are actually a synagogue of Satan. It was some of these proclaimed Jews who were actually running to the Romans saying, look, these people won't bow down and using Rome to torture and kill Christians. John makes it clear that these are not all Jews. They're not the real Jews because not only are they not following the teachings of Jesus, they're not even actually following the teaching of Moses. And we'll see more about that in the next letter to Pergamum. How bad will this get? How bad will this persecution Poverty, suffering, and sorrow get. Jesus is really clear in verse 10. Be faithful unto death. The persecution for some or the suffering of some would actually mean their death. Many would not be healed. Many would not be rescued from prison. Many would not be spared torture or being fed to animals for the entertainment of the public many of the Christians in Smyrna would die and their deaths would not be easy. Here's where the understanding of this letter becomes very important and it makes a big difference. If this letter is just about a future church, about the end times, that will only suffer the tribulation, then it doesn't have much context to us. But if it is for all churches of all times, then it is very much for us. And speaking that we too we'll have tribulations as we follow and we have choices to make as we follow Jesus. And here is a fact that I think contributes to the fact that these, are, these letters are for all churches. Everything that Jesus spoke of, spoke of about happening in Smyrma happened within the next few years. The historian, Hesubius, records the murder of many Christians in Smyrma about 156 A.D., he records gruesome details of how Christians in Smyrma were impoverished, imprisoned, tortured, and killed. The most notable of the time was actually the bishop himself of Smyrma, Polycarp. They came to the bishop of that church and said, if you will recant, we will relent. And he refused. So they punished him. Then they pressured him. Still he refused. Then they promised him, if you do not recant from Christ, we will burn you alive. And they did. And they gave him the chance, last chance to recant, and here's what he said. Polycarp said, for 86 years I have been his servant, and he has never done me wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? So he died, never recanting of his faith. These trials and persecutions and executions, they're not isolated to the church in Smyrma or to the time of Smyrma. These same persecutions have happened to the church throughout history. Persecutions like in the church of the former Soviet Union. The former Soviet Union made up of countries, Russia, Ukraine, Belarus, and many others, outlawed Christianity, outlawed Bibles, outlawed public gatherings to celebrate Christianity. And just like this time, neighbor turned against neighbor and turned each other in. If you worshiped Christ, if you proclaimed Christianity, you were turned in. And just like you were also denied economic possibility, you would, could certainly not hold social or political office. And oftentimes you were in prison and sometimes even killed for your faith. That was just in the 1990s. That was just prior to 1990. That's not ancient history, and although things have opened up in that country, the church in many parts of the world, China, Iran, Iraq, Syria, suffers today. Here's the truth. There will be people that are dying for their faith as we are worshiping here today. There are more Christians martyr in this time in history than in any other time of history. Right now, as we talk of this, there are brothers and sisters choosing to die rather than deny their faith in Jesus Christ. Tribulation is not a short period of time for one particular church sometime in the future to signify the beginning of an end event. Tribulation, Jesus says, is going to happen for all of us. And some will be pretty bad. Some will be unto death. And it's really important that we look at this. This tribulation, this poverty, this suffering had nothing to do with individual sin, disobedience, or unrighteousness or unfaithfulness. There is not one hint in this letter of cause. Oh, you guys did this, and therefore you will suffer this. In fact, it is quite the opposite. All of this poverty, all of this suffering, all of the tribulation is actually because they were faithful. And that shakes some of our Western Christianity. That shakes my formula. If I follow God, then I will only suffer this much. Jesus delivers a hard and beautiful truth. Sacrifice trials will be part of every Christian's life. And for some, those sacrifice and trials will be fierce and some will end in death. And far from being a consequence of sin, sometimes our suffering will be for and solely and beautifully be for the glory of God. Philippians 129 says this, for you, it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Suffering, persecution, even dying for faith is a part of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And it will be until Jesus comes and brings it fully here. Healing brings a testimony to God, no doubt. Rescue brings an incredible testimony to God. Deliverance brings an incredible testimony to God. So does faithfulness. So does endurance. So does what the Bible calls overcoming. In fact, in every one of the letters, Jesus says, to all of the letters, to those who overcome. So what does Jesus, so to Smerman verse 11, he says, who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. In fact, in each of the seven letters, he starts with this, or has at some point promises to overcomers. Here's the promises of overcoming. Here's what overcoming means. Enduring, when you have every right to give in. Carrying hope, when all hope is gone. Courage, when everything around you says you can be filled with fear. Standing firm, when others have fallen away. Victory, victory, even when you've been defeated. That's overcoming. In my opinion, overcoming doesn't get enough good press in Christianity. I really don't think so. It doesn't get its place of honor. Overcoming is a place of honor. We are not called to results. We are called to faith. No matter the illness, the suffering, the oppression, the persecution to his people, to his overcomer, Jesus promises victory. Here's all the promises. You will sit on his throne with him. You will receive manna from heaven. You will receive a secret name from him. You will be spared a second death. You will be a pillar of God's holy temple. You will eat from the tree of life forever. Notice, Jesus commands to his followers... Under this poverty, under this persecution, under this suffering, not one time does he recommend vengeance. Not one time does he talk about anger. Not one time does he talk about self-pity. That is not his prescription. Jesus' answer to his followers is simply to overcome, and in overcoming, you will have victory. John 5.4 says this, 1 John 5.4, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Sometimes it's just faith. Tribulation will come to every Christian. To some, it will be severe. To some, it will be unto death. But because, this is Jesus, this is what he says, but because of me, in me, through me, you will always be victorious. What strikes me about this letter is the simplicity. The entire letter's four verses. And in four verses, Jesus identifies huge challenges that we will face as a church. And in four letters, he gives, four verses, he gives clear direction, and he gives us the promise of victory. The instruction is not easy, but it is also not complicated. It's pretty simple. In a few hours, I will take off to go to Ukraine. I've made almost 50 trips to Ukraine, and yet it is difficult for me to get on the plane every time because of the sorrow, the poverty, and the suffering that I will see in the church in Ukraine. Ukraine is a former country of the Soviet Union and still suffers under the regime and that power even now with Russia on its borders, waging war against Ukraine. Ukraine is not valuable in the world because its economy really has no value and so Russia could literally walk in, steal a part of their country and the world did nothing. The poverty of Ukraine, the instability, the corruption, the lack of any kind of safety net, not even medical care that you can count on means that the Ukrainian Christians are forced to decide what they believe and who they believe in afresh every morning. They must get up and decide, is Jesus who he claims to be or not? Because I have no backup. And that simplicity inspires me. I go to spend time encouraging the mission staff and the worship team can come up anytime. I go to spend time encouraging the mission staff who are mostly poor themselves and they choose to pour out their lives for the even poorer and the disabled. I will do a retreat in hopes of encouraging their hard but beautiful lives. I will learn, I've learned long ago that going with a canned preparation into Ukraine and talking to frontline saints is fruitless and worthless And so I spend all my time praying, God, what do I say to these frontline saints to encourage their beautiful but difficult lives? I realized something as I simultaneously prepared to go there and preach here. Over 50 trips, hundreds and hundreds of teachings, and I realized God's message has always somehow been a part of this letter to Smyrna to them. It's always come down to this. Steve, assure them, I am sovereign and I am in control on all things. Remind them, I have conquered, even conquered their deaths. Encourage them to stay faithful to me to the end. Tell them, I am with them now and I will be with them then. I'm going to Ukraine because their journey is simpler than ours. It's definitely not easy. It's definitely not easier, but it is simpler. And it leads me to the question that really counts. I think the day is coming where our faith is going to need to be simpler, folks. I really do. I think the simplicity that we are gonna need, we in the West and especially in America have had the blessing and I would contend perhaps the curse of endless content, endless hours to listen and study endless comfort in which to ask questions about what and search out what our personal individual mission and calling would be we have had the privilege but also the distraction of debatelessly end, or endlessly debating pieces and parts of christianity and in many cases we have lost the simpler fuller easy direct important part I do not say this ominously. I actually say it with excitement and anticipation for what will rise out of this new paradigm that I think may come. Because power and hope and promise will rise because it always has. If and when that time comes, we will be far less focused on how we do things or the results of our activities. We'll have little time for endless questions searching for our specific gifts and our specific callings, I believe in that time we will find the simplicity of asking ourselves day to day the one question that the church has asked itself in the early times. One question, were you faithful today? It's amazing how much clarity that simple question brings to what you do with your life. How do I be faithful today? I believe that Jesus is calling this body, Antioch Indianapolis, to that simpler faith now. I believe we are being called to lead in that simpler faith right now. I believe he's calling us to be freed from endless questions and boundless passion of searching for one thing or another and the who's the most right and settle on just the only thing that counts. Was I faithful to Jesus today? Live each day with certainty of his sovereignty and the power of his resurrection, asking God to simply give us the power, strength, and courage to be faithful. Believing like Paul said, I know in whom I have put my trust in, and I know that he is faithful to guard me and to the end. And at the end, we will live. And Jesus will meet us there and give to us what he holds for us right now, the crown of life. And that day, we will overcome everything, everything that we face this day. Let's pray. Can you stand with me? Lord, I thank you for this word To us today and the promise and the hope and the simplicity the promises that you give us of who you are I venture to say in this room there are endless numbers of questions that exist health struggles that are very real questions about relationships hurts pains past history of churches and future churches it's endless Could you lead us to the simpler question of not counting on anything except who you are, what you are, and that you always be exactly that. Help us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.